This is James Ernest from Cheap Ass Games, and you're listening to Legends of Tabletop. Hey everybody, this is John. And this is Vince. And you're listening to Legends of Tabletop. Creating legends one die at a time. Good evening everybody. We're on episode number 87 tonight and we're lucky enough to have James with us. So thank you sir for coming on tonight. Hello. We do a thing on the front here called Something Cool. So whatever cool thing you may have going on for the last, you know, couple weeks, last month. It doesn't have to be gaming related, but if so, extra points for that. Everything I do is gaming related. I can't get away <laughs> from it. Um, I think the coolest thing I'm working on right now is a game called Rochi, R-O-C-H-I, which is a, um, it's a gambling game based on a tarot-style deck from a fantasy book by a friend of mine. Uh, Sonia Lyris is the author of The Seer, and she's writing the sequel to The Seer, and she wanted a game in it, and I wanted to make her a game, so that's kind of where we're at. Um, the... Uh, the, the deck is a, like I said, it's like a tarot deck. It's, it's all character cards. It's all sort of major arcana, 54 cards, and six suits of different size. So there's four, four cards in the smallest suit, 14 cards in the largest suit. And um, uh, the, ga- the game is, it sort of does the, the job of poker, but it's very different from poker. And we've been playing it with uh, uh, friends lately, and I just got a beta deck uh, designed, and in another week or two, I'll have the beta test rules up for everyone else to download and play. So that's what I've been up to, among many other projects. Uh, that's the cool thing I've been doing. Cool. That sounds pretty good. So we have another project that's coming from a, a book-related thing you have going on. Also, we have pairs and tack kind of fall into that category. I um, I love doing games like that. Uh, you probably don't know that I also did the Fable 2 pub games, the, the gambling games that were inside Fable 2. Uh, I, I like writing games of that difficulty level as sort of to nest into larger games or larger worlds. And in fact, the first uh, formal game design project that I ever did was a chess variant or chess style game for a fantasy book that I wrote in high school. And the game huh. got all kinds of development and the game, the book did not get done. <laughs> of course. <laughs> but you do have a couple of books under your belt now, right? Uh, yeah, they're all nonfiction, though. Uh, I did a couple of books about how to play poker, and I did a book about uh, juggling, uh, contact juggling. And uh, I am working on, although I'm not really working on it, I should be working on a, design, a game design textbook, uh, which is notes from a class that I taught a few years ago, just sort of turned into a, a full, full-on book. Okay, cool. Let me go back, and I'm, I'm bringing up all the various windows here for the social media. Oh, yeah. um, so I, questions up now, we'll cue back into there. So you did a, a stint over at Watsi. Um, did that time as a freelancer sort of introduce you into the gaming industry or were you working on things uh, prior to that? I, I would say that it did. I, 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 the, I went to a convention this weekend that was very close to the hotel for DreamCon, which was 1993. And I looked at the, the hotel and I, I had distinct you know, pure memories of, of the first year of Wizards of the Coast, uh, uh, Magic the Gathering. I was at that con 
reading the alpha rulebook and telling them that I was desperate to help them rewrite it because it was so bad. Uh, my, <laughs> the, the, work, the first work that I did for Wizards was, was some uh, editing of their online like, like comment thread, MTGL, and also writing the rules, rewriting the rulebook. I did that um, a total of four times. Wow. Okay. That, that could have been Fantasy Flight for sure because they're as much as I like uh, Fantasy Flight games, their books are laid out absolutely horribly. <laughs> well, you know, the rules to a trading card game are extremely hard to write and they're, they're, you need to be a technical writer and a gamer to be able to do it. Uh, they were written by gamers and game developers and so they sort of weren't, they didn't make sense to anybody else. Concise. And, and they, they weren't really correct either. Like a lot of the arguments came from the fact that they didn't really meet up in every specific point. So there was a lot of work on everybody's part, but, but I sort of um, inserted myself into that and was a freelance writer, editor, graphic designer, and so on for Wizards for off and on, in and out for a couple of years, uh, but never a game designer. Unfortunately, I pitched a game to them, but, uh, but never actually sold anything. And eventually went on to start my own company instead. Right. So when you left there, you started Deep Games in 1996, is that correct? That's more or less right. Um, I think I left Wizards in 95. I took about that year, 96, to sort of figure out how to, how to do game design as a professional. And because I was writing so many games, I just decided to, to figure out a cheap way to, to print them myself. Mm-hmm. And, and when you started Cheap Ass Games, what was your, you know, sort of design philosophy getting started? Um, I wanted people to be able to experiment with different games really cheap. So, and I wanted to do that too. I wanted to bring out a lot of stuff. And sometimes it was deadline driven and not really done when it shipped. And, and sometimes it was, I was just experimenting with stuff that my group liked, but nobody else did. So there's a lot of kits and misses in that first, you know, couple of years. But a lot of stuff came out through Cheap Ass and, and uh, I learned a lot about how to do it just by doing it. Right. And, and the, the first 10 years of cheap ass games, you guys, you put out about a hundred games, I think, right? That's about right. It depends on how you count it, you know, expansions and, and new games and, and, and what have you. Mm-hmm. And, and the sort of the, the cool thing, I guess, was when you got started, it's all black and white didn't include a lot of the, you know, the fiddly bits, the, the pawns, the dice and all those sorts of things to be able to get that price point down. So like you said, somebody can pick up a game for five bucks and if they don't like it, eh, it's only five bucks. Yeah, exactly. And we sort of had a philosophy that people would get one good set of gaming stuff, like a good set of dice and a good set of money and a, a good set of cards and whatever, and just use that again and again. A lot of people sort of liked getting the cheapest components that they could to go along with the cheapness of the rest of the brand. And I was like, well, I guess you can do that, but I don't play Dr. Lucky with paper clips and wads of paper at my house. I play with nice pawns. I don't know why you don't do that. But um, uh, yeah, our design philosophy was that we, I looked at the industry and saw a lot of people competing to look bigger than they were and to, to spend more on production values and more on components. And um, there was a popular standalone card game uh, that came out the year after Magic that was really expensive. It was like $17 for a deck of cards, which at the time was ridiculous. But it was a double deck, and it was the same number of cards as two Magic decks, so I guess it was okay that it was the same price as two Magic decks. But I just, just was like, I can't, I don't understand. There was a real gulf sort of below $10, and we could walk in there and set up shop and have really no competition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's a good deal. Um, yeah, and even now, like, I try to purchase most of my games at my local game store. Um, you know, it, it's easy now online to be able to just 
you know, buy stuff through Amazon or, or half.com. And it really sort of cuts out that local element. And, you know, you can find some fairly decent games for, you know, 20 bucks or less, but they're more filler type games where if you want to get into the, you know, the broader, you know, strategy, we're going to play this over two or three hours. You're looking at, you know, 50 bucks, 60 bucks. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, our games are still cheap on that scale. And, and, I can't do what I used to. I can't do the short run black and white cheap games that I used to make because even printing has changed. It's easier for people to print stuff at home, but it's harder for me to go to a local printer because they don't exist anymore. Um, They've all been sort of sucked up or put out of business because nobody needs to print things. So our free stuff is still free and we're we're hoping to put some more stuff up at places like drive through cards. Um, But I can't do I can't make a profit on the black and white games unless I charge the same as anybody else would for their stuff in, in full color. Right. And, and it's interesting because you do, you know, prominently displayed on the website are all those free games along with games that you do currently have for sale. What's the, what's kind of the mindset behind that to be like, Hey, just take the free stuff. Well, some of them are free versions of things you could buy. They're like demos or, you know, if you can't afford the, the, the physical thing, it's quite a hassle to put them together. So I really don't think I'm, I'm costing myself any sales there, but, but you know, I'm also keyed into that philosophy of there's players who just want to play and I'm okay with, with essentially giving them a demo of, of the kind of games that I do. And if they like them, they can, they can go and spend their money on something else. I mean, something else from me. <laughs> yeah, well, of course, of course. <laughs> um, I mean, I've gotten, really lucky, been... with, I've go gotten really, go really, really lucky with hack because I don't normally get a chance to, market an abstract strategy game, but there's plenty of abstracts up there that I, that are free because I can't sell them. You know, there's, mm-hmm. there's some that were free. They were always free and they were free on my business card and, and so on. But, but I've also done some abstracts that just ran in magazines because if I tried to put it in a package and sell it, I would just lose money on it. Sure. Sure. Um, when I was doing my research, you know, for tonight and I was watching some of the seminars and panels and things that you've done. So let me ask you this. How do you quantify fun? Uh, well, first you have to define it appropriately. Right. Um, and I guess, you know, quantify, define, um, one of my favorite definitions of fun, it comes from a video of goats playing on a big plastic sheet. Uh, there's, there's, uh, there's, it's like a, it's a metal or a plastic, like, like a sheet that's been bent into an arch and the little baby goats are jumping up on it and falling off and it's bouncing around and they're knocking each other off. And the grown up goats are like, you kids cut it out. Right. But, but what the goats are doing is they're poking at a new thing that they've never seen before. And they're, they're seeing what it'll do. They're trying something. They're getting the reaction that they want. Sometimes they're getting surprised. Sometimes that's what fun is. Fun and play are, are poking at a system to see what it does. And, and so you have to be able to make guesses about what it's going to do. And sometimes it has to be able to surprise you. And the grownups don't get on the thing and play on it because they feel like they've seen everything. Um, and the kids play on it because they because they feel like they haven't and they and they want to learn. And I think that gamers do that with games and different personalities and different experience levels have different plastic sheets to play on. But, you know, some people poke at other people and that's their fun. And some people poke at pure mathematical systems and that's their version of fun. But it's all sort of this. It boils down to that same sort of experimentation and, uh, you know, and learning thing. I think once you get super good at a game, it turns into work. Like I got really good at blackjack for a while and it kind of just wasn't fun at all. Like that's sort of the joke about the, 
the the long long term blackjack players. He tells you all that he does and his exact edge and the hours that he works and whatever. And you're like, why do you do all this work? And he says, I might get lucky because <laughs> the joke is that of course he doesn't think like that. By the time you're that good at something, it's it just turns into work. <laughs> yeah, there's there's no luck involved at that point. Right. <laughs> Very little, I guess. <laughs> and and you're a fairly avid uh, poker player yourself, right? Yeah, I love poker. Uh, I I I, I like I I pick poker over blackjack because casinos don't care if you're good at it. Uh, hmm. So uh, uh, so that's part of it, and it's it's also you know if you're really good at poker, you can make a lot better money than if you're really good at blackjack. Blackjack has too many countermeasures, and you know the stakes are too high and whatever. But yeah, I love poker. I have a regular weekly poker night, and I don't play that for money. Uh, but but I play it to get together and have fun with people and keep my chops, you know. Yeah, I mean, that's the epitome of, of gaming, whether it's D&D or poker or Splendor, as we were talking about before uh, before we got on, uh, you know, just to bring people together and, you know, have that ability to, you know, just interact, socialize and kind of let everything kind of fall away for a while. Well, and when I, I worked in digital for a few years, I went to work at Microsoft and, and uh, some smaller studios and, and did computer games long enough to learn uh, a lot of discipline. But I found out that's not really what I'm good at. I'm good at the tabletop experience. I'm good at the the friend experience and the relationship building and the playing outside of the game and all of that, that, you know, digital stuff is just somebody else's problem. <laughs> okay. Um, so again, in doing some of my research, I've, I've heard you say that um, your uh, sort of design philosophy is story first, as opposed to say mechanics or a theme. Um, is it, easier to design a mechanic around a story. So kind of what's your process in regards to that? Well, I want to know what the players are going to do. Um, I want to know what the players are going to pretend to be, what they're going to think about, what they're going to talk about, what's going to attach them to the game. As a publisher, I want to know what I'm going to write on the box. Um, and in the clear, clear exception of, you know, games like abstract games like TAC, the story is the most appealing part of the box text. Kill Dr. Lucky is about killing an old man in his house. And how you do that is really secondary to that's what you're doing. Um, if that game was even slightly about something else, it would be less interesting. And to me, that's central to selling it. And I don't just mean collecting money for it, but I mean getting someone to commit their time to learn the rules and sit down and pretend to do that thing with, with their friends. So because I make primarily games in that category, I prefer to think of the story first. The story is harder than the mechanics. The story is the real challenge. If you don't care about story, then you'll have a game like Splendor where the story is irrelevant. Um, but when I play Splendor, it frustrates me because the story is worse than irrelevant. It tells me lies about how the game works, <laughs> right? So, mm-hmm. so, uh, so that's not fun. So, and, and so if a, story meets, if a story matches the mechanics, I've been through two meetings in my life many, many times. And one of them is, the story is this, what are the mechanics? And the other one is, the mechanics are this, what is the story? And the first one is always great. The first one, you can think of a thousand ways to kill Dr. Lucky. If the story is we're all trying to kill an old man in his house and the first one to kill him wins, how you do that, like the whiteboard immediately fills up with suggestions of individual specific story-related things that could happen, ways it could be set up. Obviously, it's a board game, but that's not the only way you could do it. We did it as a card game. Um, If I come to you with a mechanic, a dry, abstract mechanic, you know, everyone, your job is to line up three things, and if, if you line up three things, they disappear. And then I say, okay, now, what's this really about? That meeting goes really badly, right? It has to stay pure abstract, or you put a theme on it that's irrelevant, like candy, or 
or you pull your hair out trying to figure out how to sell it as a story game. It just isn't. You know, there is no thing in the world where you line up three of them and they disappear. So right away, you're going against whatever you pretended it is to try and make it into a story game when it wasn't. Sure. So that's, you know, that's the foundation of my philosophy. Maybe it's a bad experience. And I know people, uh, other people who design games for a living go mechanics first, but I just, I can't do it. I guess uh, Kinesia is like that. All, all mechanics here. I did a thing. Go do something with it. <laughs> well, and Reiner's the product of and sort of perfect for the machine that delivers his products, which is that his publishers don't care what theme he picks. They're going to change it. And after doing that a few times, I think he's got no reason to even care what theme right. it is. He tried to sell a game to me years ago, and I, I went back and forth with him about what it was about. And he just didn't know, and, and, but cared enough to not like any of my suggestions. And what, he, what, I, what I think he was telling me was, just don't tell me. Just do it. Just don't tell me what it is. <laughs> but, but I couldn't go that way. And it was very abstract. And I was like, you've got to give me something to go on here. And finally, it just, it just fell through. Hmm, okay. Uh, but I, so I think most of the publishers that Reiner deals with just take the mechanics and go, okay, Egypt, and ship it. And he's like, okay, whatever. It used to be mm. about the mafia, but go ahead. Right. As long as the check clears. <laughs> yeah. Um, so on the heels of that, then, have you ever worked on a game that either you wouldn't play yourself or you just didn't enjoy uh, working on or designing? I, I think I've been on big enough projects. I've been a small enough person on a big enough project that I could say, no, I'm not going to go play that game when it ships. But the things that I make for myself, I, I really enjoy. Like, uh, yeah, without exception. Okay. That's cool. I and mean, you have to. I mean, if your heart's not in it, I mean, you know, how good of a quality product is it going to be then? Sure. And I, and I think that there's sort of a cynical attitude among some content creators that they will, they make product for people who aren't them, you know, a, a grouchy old man who designs dolls for little girls. And, and I'm not that guy. Like I, if I have to make a game in a sphere that I'm not familiar with, I'll get familiar with that sphere and I'll play that, you know, games of that type with people who like them to try to figure out what's good about them. I don't usually need to do that though. Cause I like the, all, all the kinds of games that I make. I like Sure, sure. All right, I'm going to jump over to the live chat. Charles in charge asks, what was the cheap way of printing in the early days as opposed to now? Um, small printers existed. You know, you could have a little neighborhood printer that could, that could run 200 copies of something on his little, uh, his little press and cut it in his basement or whatever. And um, because people needed things printed, people needed business cards and flyers and quarterly reports and all the things that we now do electronically um, 20 years ago, that people had real print shops. So, so I could, I could source everything locally. I could, I could build it in my house. I could, you know, black and white was cheaper than color because, because films really were a big part of the cost. But nowadays pre-press is, is cheap. Shipping and paper are expensive and that the shipper doesn't care what, how many colors of ink you use. Sure. Sure. All right, jump back over here. Um, how difficult is it to balance luck versus strategy and player agency when you're developing? Um, so very, <laughs> but um, you know, there's a spectrum of games, and people like games all along that spectrum. So, Tack is a pure strategy game that is meant to be a good pure strategy game, and uh, and I've done plenty of games that are pure luck as well, and everything kind of along the the way. The the, the, the thing that I try to explain in seminars about luck and skill is that luck can be delivered in good and bad ways. Um, if you want to talk about randomness as being either biased or fair, um, 
biased randomness is a is an event in the game that just picks someone to love and someone to hate. Um, and fair randomness is an event in a game that gives maybe gives different people different resources, but those resources are useful for different strategies. Um, so a simple example is I could either roll a die and, and advance a mouse, and you roll six and I roll a one, and so you just went farther than me, and that's all we got. Or I could roll a die that gives your mouse cheese and gives my mouse string, and that, okay, those are different things, and, it's, and it was random, and I didn't know what I was going to get, but if I was prepared for cheese and string, then I'm sort of in a better position than you were to, to take whatever the dice gave me. Um, there's a, there's a mechanic called grit that comes out of Dwarven Dig, but a lot of uh, random games do this, where they, if they give you uh, a bad roll, they'll also give you something else to make up for it, like a little bit of, of uh, scratch that you can spend on a re-roll next time or something like that. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, and, you know, it's fair that not every game is for every player, and, you know, different games will scratch a different itch, and, you know, maybe tonight you want to do, you know, in-depth you know, strategy, whatever, but tomorrow it's like, Hey, let's play zombie dice or, you know, let's play. Right. Exactly. Uh, and if zombie last, if zombie, if zombie dice lasted for two hours, it would be horrible. So there's, there's <laughs> lots of things that mitigate luck. One of them being short play time, um, uh, that make, you know, better and worse games with sort of the same amount of those components. Mm -hmm. For me personally, I mean, if I'm, if I'm going to invest six hours, I'd rather role play, you know, right. play D and D or, or whatever. Um, you know, if we're just going to get together for, you know, a half an hour, an hour, you know, I could play 30 games of pairs, which is fantastic. Or, you know, we can mix in three or four different games in that, you know, same period of time. And then you're getting, you know, a little bit of everything. Right. All right. Um, as far as mechanics go, are, is there anything new that we're going to see? I mean, have, have mechanics been designed out and everybody's just taken little pieces or do you expect that we'll see, you know, new and exciting things, you know, come out from year to year? Well, still? I, I think we put way too much faith in, in game mechanics. And I think that's why you see so many clones of things like Dominion, for instance, or magic before that. Um, and what people don't understand is with the possible exception of Dominion, most of the big, successful game products, the, the real bombshells that have hit over the last 30 years have not been successful because of their mechanics. They've been successful because they represented a new business model. Uh, and that's what you should be copying, <laughs> right? But, <Yeah. laughs> but in terms of the question of is there, is there anything new, the answer is of course there is. And, and back to the theme question, the best way to sort of get at that is to approach games from the perspective of telling different stories. I don't know what story I'm telling in Dominion. I guess I'm building something, but, but when you get anywhere, if you scratch it any more than that, it just falls apart and it's a math game. So, you know, write a story about competing oil companies. When two oil companies drill in the same oil field, if they both withdraw the oil at a very slow rate, they will get the maximum yield. But of course they don't because if one of them sucks faster, he gets more than the other guy did. Like that's an amazing mechanic from the real world. And make a game out of that, right? Every game that you invent, if you have a story, there's a system behind that story. There's a reason that it works in the real world. Find out how that system works and you've got a new game mechanic. Mm -hmm. All right. I'm going to jump back over to the live chat. Uh, Tom Rogers asks, uh, what are your thoughts on games like Warhammer? Warhammer what? Warhammer 40K? You mean like the, or Warhammer the, the, the miniatures game? I am assuming miniatures game probably. Yeah. yeah um, I, I love playing it when I have the time. 
like I got a bunch of minis and I play with my daughter a few times and it's a fun game, but, but it is a huge time commitment. Uh, so, so I don't know. I don't know how often I'm, I'm ever going to play it. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I, I like, I like games that don't cost me much. I have trouble committing to sit down to watch a movie for 90 minutes <laughs> <laughs> and that's, and that's passive. Right. But sure. So, I mean, I'm writing games in the five minute to 30 minute to maybe, maybe 60 minute range these days. Mm-hmm. And I'm not, I don't think I'm playing anything longer than that. Okay. Have you ever played Battletech or no? I don't think I have. Um, okay. I, I worked on a, uh, a proposal for a Battletech style miniatures game a long time ago, but it, it didn't get very far, but I don't think I played the actual game. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, my brother and I usually play Friday nights. That's kind of our kind of our thing. He left my D and D group because he was like, "I'd rather play BattleTech." And I'm like, "If you're going to come over every week, that's great because I'll get to see you more often." Well, and when uh, when I was working on Pirates of the Spanish Main, I sampled a lot of tabletop miniatures games. So I mean, I played like I played through War Machine and I played through Warhammer and I I may have played BattleTech in that time or at least read the books and you know a, a half dozen other ones just to sort of feel out the space because I don't typically write minis games, but mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I certainly am not a, a an, an adherent of, of any of those. Sure. Okay. That's fair. Um, let's see. Uh, where do you draw your inspiration from? We were just talking about, you know, real world examples. Is that, you know, kind of just as you see things as you're kind of going through life and be like, hey, that would be interesting and maybe I can make a game about it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, recently I've been writing a lot of gambling games. And so those are incredibly hard to write properly because there's you get very few rules. You know, you get like 10 rules or less go. Um, and the inspiration from those is how can I take this very simple componentry and deliver a new decision, you know, not a new mechanic, but a new decision to a player and have him understand that essentially the first time he sees it. Um, but for like a story game, yeah, stories come from everywhere. I keep a notebook. I mean, obviously I keep it on my phone now, but just a long list of somebody told a joke at a bar. That's hilarious. That should be a game. You know, whenever, every time somebody says there should be a game about that, like, I, I say that about almost everything, and then when I'm actually right, I write it down and, and, and keep it in my list. And I've got an infinity-long list of, of, of games that I want to write, but it's because I keep them, right? If I was a screenwriter, I would do that thing. If I was, uh, uh, if I was a songwriter, I would do that. But I've just got a, uh, an ear for mechanics and systems and stories that, that I ought to save and, and use sometime. Okay. And that's kind of how Paris came about then, right? It was uh, one of Paris those things where we were at the pub. Paris, and- so Paris was a... I want a game for a specific use. The inspiration for pairs was somewhat unusual in that I was at a pub with my wife and we looked over at their shelf of board games, which were in very poor condition and just said, okay, I want to write a game that goes there. So what is that? What is a pub game? Not just, you know, that belongs on the shelf of discarded board games like, you know, Monopoly and Sorry, but really what is the game that they would play in a pub? What's the game they'd play in a pub 300 years ago? How would poker work if nobody invented poker? Those, those sort of questions um, led to a framework that defined what a pub game is. It's quick, it's portable, it's easy to explain, it happens fast, it's got randomness, you can bet on it, you can make decisions, maybe. Um, all of the things that describe what a pub game is were my footprint or my template for inventing pairs. And... Um, so there was no story per se, obviously, but there was more of a theme or a feeling of like, you know, what, what is a good quick playing risk management press your luck thing that I can do where the odds are complicated, but easy to explain. And that's what led us to the triangular 
deck. And uh, Paul Peterson and I just kind of sat down with this idea one day and we said, okay, it's bad to get a pair. And this is based on prior games we've both done. Um, the, uh, one of the examples being Wizard's Tower from the Fable 2 pub games. In Wizard's Tower, you are dealing cards until two of them match and they're in a grid, so they have to be touching and matching for it to count against you. But in pairs, we're just like, okay, somewhere in your hand you have two of a kind. It's like playing low ball. As soon as that happens, you're out. It's more interesting if the odds of pairing one card are different from the odds of pairing another card. And poker sort of delivers that to you by showing you what cards are exposed. But in pairs, we're just like, well, if we have one one and two twos and three threes and so on, then the odds of pairing every card are different from the start, and that's interesting. Uh, it's again, it's easy to explain, but it's but doing the math is incredibly hard, and that's sort of what you have to do on the fly when you play that game. Mm-hmm. Okay, and that uh, wound up in uh, Pat um, Rothfuss's, uh, or at least. Uh, was it added to, or did you kind of draw it from? I, I forget what the well, interaction was there. Well, pairs existed kind of in a vacuum, and, you know, it was a classic medieval-style pub game. Pat was talking to me about other stuff, and I was like, look, man, I, let's, let's do something together. I have a game that I really like that's a cool pub game. Would you like to put your universe on it? Um, and he was like, sure. So, like, the, his books clearly predated the pub game, and my interest in the pub game predated my even thinking about, you know, joining it with Pat's books, but we, we did sort of steer them together for the Kickstarter campaign and, um, and made a few decks that were based in his world. And I think the game may show up in the background of, of, uh, of the next book. It may, I don't know, but um, I'm much more interested in writing the games that he's already talked about because I love the challenge of doing that. <laughs> I like the way Pat talks about games in his books because he's not stupid. He doesn't give away the rules. He just talks about how good they are. Um, right. <laughs> but, but even so, like there's a framework. I, I know what corners is. I, I actually, you know, I know more than just what corners is, but, but and I know what tack is. I know what he says it is. Um, but I want to flesh it out and like, you know, make it real. That's, uh, that's super fun. Cool. All right. I'm going to jump back over to live chat. Tom asks again, uh, what do you think about fan-made games such as Pokemon Tabletop United or GURPS-based games? I don't. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I I don't even know what, what the first one is. Yeah, the the first one I hadn't heard of. Um, Tom, I I think that if you know players sit down and are like, hey, this is a you know a really cool idea. You know, I wish we could play this game. By all means, do it. Find a, a rule system that works. Uh, you know, have the players that are you know involved and everybody's you know sort of in being able to make that decision. And there's not some question later on. It's like, well, I thought it was going to be this way, but you know now it's not. Um, so I, I think that things like that, you know, anything that brings you together, gets you to the table, you know, gives you that sort of an outlet is is fantastic. I mean, you know, the the GURPS you could run practically anything. You can find a, a book and, and a rule set within GURPS to run something. So yeah. yeah. I, have at it (laughs) well and fan made i mean it's weird to distinguish games as being fan made because honestly games are just games and and the there are so many games that people make up that we don't hear about we are exposed to the retail game culture and there's a particular kind of game that succeeds at retail but people who want to design games sort of think that they have to design for that machine and that's not true like everyone kit bashes dnd everyone is a game designer if they're a player at all they've changed a rule in their life, right? So it's really just a matter of degree from going to kit bashing Monopoly to, to making up your own games. And yeah, it, it doesn't have to be something that you can sell. It doesn't have to care about 
copyrights and trademarks and art and all those things, if you're just making it for your own fun, I think that's how you learn how to do that, right? Mm -hmm. No, for sure. sure. Um, what games are hitting your table these days, if anything? The stuff I'm working on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see. We did. We we played a little bit of. This was still work related. We played a little bit of X Wing over Christmas. Oh, cool. Um, uh, that's that's quite lovely. Uh, we played. Uh, my daughter's a big fan of. Um, Oh, what's the architecture skyscraper building dice game? What's it called? Blueprints. Uh, she's a big fan of Blueprints. Um, we picked up, um, God, it's the, most, it's the most difficult to remember name, but it's like a Splendor type game from um, Eduardo Baraf. Do you remember, do you know that game I'm talking about? It's Gems Something Something. Uh, not off the top of my head, no. I'm going to look it up now, see? All right. <laughs> But uh, you should ask me another question while I'm doing this. Okay. Well, I'll just respond to, uh, to Tom. Um, yeah. I mean, anything that, you know, you're running at home, any sort of a homebrew system, you know, obviously not, you know, supported by the company. So I don't know if I'm, I'm misinterpreting a little bit. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, you know, if you're not out selling it, you know, I don't, I don't see that there's any, any sort of problem. You know, if you wanted to, uh, to sell it, I see that the, you know, the Pokemon one is free you know, even free, you know, you got lawyers and everything else, you know, it could be kind of dicey, but if you're, you know, if you're doing it at home with your friends, yeah, for sure. I, you yeah, know. There you go. It's called gem pack cards. It really is a, it's a, it's a different version of the splendor style mechanic that I, that I liked quite a bit better actually. Okay. Gem packed cards from Eduardo. Oh, and he did herbaceous too. Okay. That's great. I got to see that. Ah, that I have heard of. <laughs> that's yeah. People were talking about that this weekend. I need to see that. I don't, I don't know what it is. But yeah. I bet it's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um, how long do you play test a game before giving it the axe? Anything between 40 minutes and seven years. <laughs> okay. These, uh, these kind of general questions are so tough. I, I mean, I, yeah, it's more yeah. fun to tell specific uh, stories, but, but I literally got a game designed in 45 minutes and produced in four hours once. I don't think I'll do better than that. Um, uh, and, and Diceland took easily seven years from first concept to delivery um, because it just, it went through so many permutations and, and, and trying this and trying that. And obviously I was doing other stuff at the time, but um, there is no right answer. I think let's talk about what I'm doing right now for, for capital city, which is also called the, the train. It's a game that I'm working on for the Calliope's Titan series. Um, they kickstarted that game spring before last. And during the Kickstarter, I did enough work on the game to sort of know what it was going to be. So there was sort of a one month, like heavy action period where I was like, okay, this is kind of what the train is going to be. Then it was kind of backburnered for about six months. I worked on it for about three. Um, I handed it over to them uh, I, about three months ago and they had it for that time and I didn't look at it. And then they brought it back to me with their notes and changes. And now it's kind of in the final month for me to get it back to them by the, around the 1st of February. So if you stacked all of that up, the time when it was actually in play test is probably about six months uh, from, you know, over the course of two years. But that six months is, is time that I'm actively writing for it or changing it. And it's been through like four serious revisions in its lifespan. So it's still got sort of the theme of building a Western town and a couple of the the unique mechanics that I haven't gotten rid of, like how people connect to buildings, but, but like how everything, where everything comes from is, is 
totally different and has changed many, many times in that in that period. And it might still go through some more design development, but they want to get it out by Gen Con, so I think we are on a we're on a clock here. Okay. Is there anything, you know, you know, in a game that doesn't get designed in a couple of hours, is there anything telling in a particular game that kind of allows it to hang on for a while? Is you like, you know, there's just something that you know that you you know kind of just sticks in your brain about, you know, you really want to work with a specific mechanic or, you know, tell a certain type of story, you know, is there anything that just be like, you know, why a game would last for, for seven years before having its story fully told? Well, it just, it just isn't clicking. I mean, like Diceland had all kinds of issues. One of them was a production issue. It originally was a plastic dice game. And when we figured out that we could put the die, make paper dice, um, we were like, well, we can print on paper dice and suddenly we can put all kinds of information on this and a picture. And, so the, the, the level of depth in the game changed quite a bit then. Um, uh, you know, and that's, that's a, ch- a fundamental change in form factor. With, with Capital City, I mean, it, 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 it's an open-ended question. It could, it could be done tomorrow or it could be done, on, and Capital City is basically done, but a game can be done tomorrow or never. And that's why it's really hard to put an estimate on when it's going to be done because, you know, it sticks around because it isn't done. It sticks around because it's not working because there are – Design objectives, if you can quantify your game objectives, you, your design objectives, you ought to do that. If you're not hitting them, you should continue trying until you do. You know, you, but if you, if you don't have them solid, if you don't have them on paper, you can kind of just give up and say, well, this is good enough, let's ship it. And you don't really get the thing that you wanted. Mm, okay. Um, so this is from Twitter. Uh, from Bob Wyman, and this is sort of related to what we're talking about. Is there a, a phase of game design that you're tempted to linger at, or is it you know finish line focused? I, I, saw that one. I don't, I don't, I don't know about the when, the linger phase. I don't know what that is. <laughs> um, like, I'll tell you where most of my games sit for the longest is 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 in the workshop phase, which is I will tell the idea to people and see if they like it. And if they don't like it, then I'll workshop the idea a few a little bit and tr- tell it to more people and see if they like it. But like, I've got a game called Going Under, which is about it's a it's a it's an asymmetric game where one player is playing a uh, an undertaker in an old west town, and the other players are playing a big box mortuary service that's coming into town to put him out of business, and in so doing, kill the town. <laughs> um, and like. It's a really weird story, and I keep workshopping it, trying to make it work. But I haven't. I, I did one sort of prototype of this a couple of years ago, but it, it didn't really stick. And so, yeah, this game is lingering perhaps forever in the "I wish I could make this story work" phase. <laughs> <laughs> is it so? Is this uh, drawn from the headlines of real life? Is this like the the Walmart story coming into? It's a little bit of a Walmart test? story, yeah. So, and and it's it's asymmetric because the big box chain is played by multiple players. And they are sort of working together in their own little game. And they're competing with each other, but they sort of have this, this megalithic thing that they can do that the, that the singular player can't do. And I don't know more than that. I mean, I'm, I'm not hedging here. Like, I literally haven't written that rest of it. But, but that's the, uh, that's the, the story that, that I'm trying to tell. And it may be just too hard to tell it. Okay. Uh, Tom is, is bucking for an internship here at the podcast. I, I got a couple of more questions here. Um, <laughs> So, uh, how, let's see, I got to scroll back up cause he's still typing. <laughs> what are your thoughts on games such as Munchkin and cards against humanity? Uh, okay. So, such as, <laughs> um, what are my thoughts on Munchkin? I don't know. 
I played Munchkin once. That's my thoughts on Munchkin. Mm, okay. Um, you know, I was like, what's all this about? And it's, it's funny, but not in a way that I think is funny. So I appreciate it. And I'm glad that they can sell lots of it, but, um, but I don't play it. And um, cards is kind of the same way. Like, I mean, I love Max and I love cards, I guess. And I kind of enjoy playing it, but I typically don't break it out because cards sort of gives you an excuse to be body and funny. And my friends don't need that. <laughs> They're just funny anyway. Um, I think it's, I, I think it's difficult to get into arguments about you know uh, whether whether cards is a too close of a of a ripoff of apples to apples. I don't personally think it is, but I can certainly understand both sides of it. I mean, in my former life, I was a you know regularly accused of plagiarism, so I kind of had to walk away from that and do this instead. But it wasn't what I was doing, and it's not what I do now. And I just don't like to get into those arguments. Sure. But uh, but it, it's it is it's a it's a game it's a game system type that's so simple that you can't change much before you fall right off the the world right so so for what it is and what it does i think it's fine now you can and they've, they've been slicing that uh that pie thinner and thinner have you seen um have you seen rotten apples i have not no rotten apples is a target product that is obviously at the nexus point between apples to apples and cards against humanity it's in a brown box it looks just like apples to apples it's it's basically got the same tagline as cards against humanity and it's like essentially as far as i can tell bought by target for target to do that thing that the other two games apparently don't do enough <laughs> <laughs> yeah well i think with the masses massive success that cards against humanity have you have a lot of clones now that are that yeah. are out I I I have Munchkin. I picked it up recently. I still have yet to play it. Um, I have cards. I've played a ton of it. Um, it's kind of situational. Like I could play that with my brother, my friends, and stuff. Not something I would ever take to the board game meetup. I mean, you yeah. really kind of have to know your audience because it's you know. Well, I don't know when I when I talk about things being funny. Uh, to you know, I get I understand how they're funny to somebody else and not to me. Without without singling out any particular game, we were just talking about like. I think there are sort of two kinds of humor. There are, there's the, the humor that is funny because you haven't heard it before, and there's the humor that is funny because you have, and I'm definitely in the sort of former category. I like to be surprised. And I, but I know that there's a lot of people who laugh strictly because I'm referring to something they've seen before, not because what I've said is actually funny. Like Shrek is built entirely on that kind of joke, and it's not funny to me, and I can't argue that it is funny to somebody else. Okay. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's cards when we play cards against humanity that just win because it's that right. particular card. Well, and it's and what's just frustrating funny. about that. And this is from, I guess, from a mechanical perspective, though, it's silly to talk about cards against humanity from a mechanical perspective. But what's frustrating about that is that the punchline wins because it is funny, not because it's good for the setup. Right. It's frustrating. And I played much harder games like that about writing jokes and so on. And, uh, I get why you can't make you can't challenge the players too much, but but like I I would rather that the Cards Against Humanity winner be a synergy of the question and the answer rather than just than just the answer is is funny. But of course that means I would rather that my friends think differently than they do, <laughs> which I can't really change. <laughs> right. 
All right. I, you know, we kind of brushed on Kickstarter a little bit and you guys are, are really savvy in that, uh, you know, top notch videos, you've, you know, quality is great. You know, sometimes we see people in costumes and things. Thank uh, you. How steep was the learning curve coming into Kickstarter as a whole new medium for, you well, know, for what it is that you do? I guess take a look at our first one and you'll see how much we've learned since then. But, um, uh, it, it was it was it was steep. There's still a lot to know. Um, Kickstarter was fairly new when we get started in it. It's still fairly new. Um, I went to a lot of seminars and tried to understand the the common wisdom about Kickstarter. And I think people were just uh, in a lot of cases grasping at thin air, trying to figure out how to maximize their gains on that platform. You know, I was being told that you have to start on a Tuesday and end on a Friday, and you know, have to have backed at least seven projects yourself and just and you have to get at least 85% funded in the first 17 hours all these numbers are just completely pulled out of thin air and what you really have to do is find partners who are famous and get them to talk about your thing like that's so much more valuable than any of the other like like number crunching detail garbage um, so what I tell people is when they want to do a Kickstarter if they want to you know if they're not already famous they should find somebody who is because crowdfunding starts with crowd and ends with funding it doesn't just you don't just put up a project and, and cross your fingers. And I guess it's hard to see that from the outside because everyone thinks that they discovered a Kickstarter project on their own, but, but they didn't, right? Somebody told them about it and there's some network of, of intelligence that pointed them to the particular one they're looking at. And if you can build that network, you're going to be successful on that platform. And if you aren't, then you can't. Sure, sure. I mean, that's uh, half of the interviews that we do, at least half are all Kickstarter related. I mean, we have designers coming on and, and maybe you're coming back on again when the new Kickstarter comes yeah, out. Yeah, of course, and, uh, you know, I will. <laughs> I'm actually sort of, you know, I'm missing it because it's been like a year since I ran one now. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's, it's cool for us. It's cool for me. Uh, to be a part of that process. I mean, I, you know, how much help is it that someone comes on our show? Maybe a little bit, maybe not. Uh, but to be part of the conversation to, to, you know, sort of be the wind beneath people's wings, as it were, to, you know, kind of help in that whole social media onslaught that accompanies a Kickstarter. It's, it, it's fun for me and, it, and it's good. It's enjoyable to see people hit those funding goals and see those games get made because Kickstarter's given, you know, gamers a whole new avenue now to be able to experience games that, you know, Parker Brothers isn't going to make or, you know, whatever, uh, Milton right. Bradley. So yeah, it, it's talked, good. Uh, I talked earlier about new platforms and new business models being as important in gaming as new mechanics or certainly, you know, in my opinion, more so. That's Kickstarter, right? And you can't point to a single game uh, because the platform exists outside of that game, but it certainly revitalized my business. Mm -hmm. um, there, it was going to be very difficult for me to break back into hobby gaming after a five-year hiatus without some kind of, of jump start. And Kickstarter certainly did that. Like we, we did our unexploded cow Kickstarter. Um, I'm, I'm going to get this wrong, but I think we did it in the fall of 2012. And, you know, without that, we would have been scrambling to try to remember, you know, get retailers to remember that we exist. Um, uh, and, and with it, we were able to, to do it with very little risk. So, so that's, um, that's been very good for us. Sure. And, and it's good for you guys because, you know, if you have an idea for a game and you're like, I don't know if people are going to like this or not. We've play tested. It seems relatively successful. You bring it to Kickstarter and it's sort of, you know, that proof in the pudding. 
you know, yes, people want to have this. I mean, you know, the pairs, I think you were looking for like $12,000 It hit over 300 and, and tack. I don't know if you're surprised, but 1.3 million. Holy cow. That's amazing. It's a good number. I mean, our, our goals for both of those games, our real goals were certainly higher than our, than our funding goals. But um, you know, we, we had a range. We, uh, pairs vastly outperformed our expectations, but um, it was not outside of our range because Patrick had been involved in a poker deck for the name of the wind the previous year that raised even more than that. Uh, so, so, you know, Patrick's a big draw and we know that and we love working with him, but that's a huge reason that he's good for us is that he's already got a dedicated fan base and, and they know that whatever he associates with is going to be good. And we can, we can rely on that. You know, his stamp of approval is worth, as you said, 1.3 million. I think, I think without, without a, without a backstory an abstract game has real trouble getting traction in the market. And that's why I don't typically do them. Um, I think I spent a little extra time and of course I got a lot more extra uh, feedback on tax. So it's going to be even better than the ones I've done before, but, but man, give me a chance. I want to do another one. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right. Um, I, you know, this is complete aside when I was doing my research and I, and I saw Pat's name and I'm like, geez, that sounds familiar. And then I pulled up his picture and I'm like, Oh shit, that's Viari. That's how I know Pat. <laughs> and then it all started to come together. I'm like, Oh, this all makes sense now. I thought that was the coolest thing. Cause I had no idea of the synergy that was happening. So that was pretty cool. Uh, so, so tack, uh, I think maybe we touched on this already. It's loosely based on, on a game that's described in Pat's book, uh, wise man's fear. Um, and I guess you were saying earlier that he describes the games enough and tells how cool they are, but uh, you know, there's a lot of room for you to kind of maneuver them to, to put stuff together. Sure, and in fact, I'll disagree with your use of the word loosely. <laughs> it's tightly based on that game. And, and actually like it wasn't designed straight out of thin air. Like Pat not only gave me the material in the book, but a couple of pages of more notes about what he wanted the game to be about. Um, he wanted road building to be a part of the story. He wanted, um, pieces that were simple, but could combine and make more complicated and powerful pieces. And we sort of, what that became was the stack. Like a stack can just do more than a single piece. And you sort of relearn that as you play. But, but, you know, that was in the brief. Um, the idea of standing stones that, that, that fall over and can't get back up, that's part of just the world design. Um, so there's a whole bunch of stuff that, that comes out of those books and comes out of that brief that he gave me that went straight into building that game. Um, so you, you could still make the argument that it's a story-based game, even though it's a pure abstract. You know, chess is a, is a 99% pure abstract too, but there's still a little bit of a story in it. Okay, cool. I've got two TAC-related questions here, one from Brandon Weaver. What are your thoughts on the future of TAC and upcoming TAC tournaments? Uh, I don't have any thoughts on the tournaments, except that I'm excited that they're happening. I mean, I, the, the TAC organization is, is independent, and, you know, Ben's doing his thing, and, and we support him in it, but I'm not, you know, making any plans for it. Um, I know we're going to have a big tournament at Gen Con. I, that's just going to be really exciting, and we have a big uh, – uh, Cheap Ass has a big booth at Gen Con as well. It's going to be all TAC all the time, I think. Um, <laughs> and uh, for the future of the game, I mean, I, we talked about it a little bit earlier, but I think we're probably going to see it new versions, a, a travel version, I hope, uh, maybe a, maybe a target version. Um, 
we may find that it's better to publish uh, with a with a partner instead of ourselves. Like, I don't want to source stuff out of China. I don't know how. Somebody else probably will. All my stuff is made in the U.S., so there that's not scalable beyond a certain point. Sure. Um, but uh, but from the response that we've gotten so far, I hope that we can turn it into something really big. Like people are quite fond of it, and and let's we should we should get the best mileage we can out of that. Okay. Cool. Uh, I'm probably going to butcher this name. Uh, Motel Zerk, uh, Zerkind asks, was three by three tack designed as a version of tic-tac-toe without a stalemate? Not, not with that goal, but, um, it sort of is, it's sort of like a better version of tic-tac-toe, right? Um, tack, tack was built on a five or a six board to start with and sort of we experimented with different board sizes, trying to find the one that was ideal. Um, we never really went down to three until we were really, really pushing the limits because obviously it's a, uh, it's a very small board, but, but uh, it certainly does play a lot like tic-tac-toe. It just adds another dimension. Sure. Okay. And Hayden Murray asks, after the success of TAC, do you have any new ideas for abstract games or deluxe of old ones? Um, I don't know if I'm promoting any of the old abstracts, although I do have a, pr a present that I want to build for my 14-year-old self. The, the, first, um, the first real deliberate game design project that I did was in high school. It's a game called T-Shy, and you can get it on the website now, but it's a, it's a game you play with chess pieces. I, I, I know it's not technically a chess variant because it's too different from chess, but you play with a chess set, and I wrote it to be sort of the backbone of a fantasy book that I was writing in high school. I didn't finish the book, but I rigorously playtested the game and wrote its history and variants and designed the pieces and all this. So now that I have a woodshop, thanks to TAC, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna spend some time this summer making a a T-shy set for uh, for my house because because uh, my 14 year old self deserves that. <laughs> there you go. That's cool. <laughs> but as far as plans for new abstracts, what I'm really planning on doing is coordinating with authors. Like we were talking about this game I'm doing with Sonia Liris, um, to do games that belong in their worlds. And uh, the one I'm doing with Sonia isn't a um, uh, abstract. It's a gambling game. Uh, so it's uh, it's quite luck driven. It's highly volatile. It has uh, some interesting decisions, but in the short term, I don't think that they're going to help you that much. <laughs> um, it's sort of like if you're a gambler at all. This is sort of like it, somewhere between poker and pie gal poker. It's like I can sit and play this for a long time and not lose or win a lot of money and have a lot of fun and drink a lot of free drinks. But um, uh, but this is designed to be part of a universe where the main character has the uncanny ability to see slightly into the future. And of course, so there's a, there's, so of course there's a scene in a casino and uh, she wanted some, some good solid game to put in there. And I wound up giving her three and uh, we're working on that scene right now. And Rochi is going to go into open beta within the next couple of weeks. I have, I have uh, a deck on order just to, to make sure that it prints right. And then I need to take the weekend to like write up the rules and then we can all play Rochi. Cool. All right. Coming to a convention near you. <laughs> I think so. I played it this weekend. I was at OrcaCon this weekend and got to play it a little bit and show it to some new folks. And, and uh, they mostly enjoyed it. There's a few gamers who want more to hold on to while the roller coaster is going, but uh, most people are, are cool with it. And uh, yeah, we want to see beta feedback. We have a publishing partner who's interested in picking it up and possibly kicking it in April and possibly getting it out by Gen Con. So you know, fingers crossed for that. We'll, we'll try to tell you more as we can. Nice. All right. We'll make sure we leave a spot for you on the schedule for that. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, you're, I, I think they're going to run their campaign at the same time that I run my campaign for Buttonman. So, you know, you can have me on and talk about both. There you in, go. There you go. In, in April. All right. We'll do a little double dipping. Yeah. Uh, are you uh, very active on the convention circuit? I, we met uh, at RINCON, I guess, last October, I guess it was. Uh, yeah. Andy Looney introduced us briefly, and uh, uh, it was it was a pleasure to meet you then, and it's great to have you on now. Uh, is uh, it- yeah, I, I just looked at my schedule for this year, and I'm going to one million conventions. Uh, <laughs> I, I go to one or two every month. I am... I'm next going to, well, let's see, the next convention that I go to, I just went to OrcaCon, which is a Seattle con, uh, yesterday, tested uh, my new game a lot that week. Um, the next one I know I'm going to, well, I'm going on the Jonathan Colton cruise, which um, I guess a lot of people probably are not. Uh, I'm going to the Gamma Trade Show, which is a you know industry trade show in the middle of March. And I think the first major gaming convention I go to is GameStorm in Portland, which is, uh, I think, towards the end of March. Uh, but rolling up from that, I do KublaCon in San Francisco, Origins, Gen Con. My wife does San Diego Comic Con. Um, I do a, a couple of gambling trade shows in the fall. Um, I, did, I, I'm, I don't know about RinCon yet. I often do RinCon, but sometimes it conflicts. Hmm. Uh, but, uh, and then, of course, there's PAX in the summer. Um, just... Con after con, it's crazy. <laughs> well, it keeps you busy, that's for sure. Well, and it also gives me lots of new players. I mean, that's part of why I love going to these things. I, I like to talk about games, I like to meet people, but I'm also, I've got a bag of stuff that needs testing and it needs new eyes. So that's why I went to OrcaCon this weekend, was just, I have a game that needs final testing. And the publisher came back to me with feedback and they're like, this is broken and this isn't working. And I'm like, okay, well, let's see about that. And, and I got to fix it and I got to fix it fast. So convention is the only place to do that. Right. Do you prefer a smaller venue like RingCon over GenCon or, you know, it doesn't. Well, if I'm testing, it doesn't matter. Like if I can get a game, it doesn't matter how big the show is. You know what I mean? Sure. Sure. Um, I started going to this really small convention in California. It's defunct now, but I I went to it for many years and you know, it was, it was all in one room. It was all in one pretty small room, but it was a great con because you could always find a pickup game. You could always play what you wanted to play. And so yeah, GenCon has spectacle and, and famous people and giant X-wings, but but if you want to play games, it has a lot more to do with how well the con is run than how big the hotel is. Sure, sure. Okay. Uh, would you consider supporting a demo team uh, to get people out there showing off all these awesome products from yeah, your past games? Do you? We, okay. do. We, have a, we have an official demo monkey program. You can join it. It's got a newsletter, and um, there's information about it at, at the website. So just go to cheapass.com and, and find out all about it. Okay, I feel bad now because I missed that and I would not have asked that question. <laughs> no, that's fine. No, people ought to know about it. Um, we, we had a great demo team, you know, 15 years ago, but when I went on hiatus, it all just sort of fell apart. And uh, now we're trying to spin it up again. Obviously, we want people out there, you know, either you want to join the USTA, the TAC Association, and just be a TAC guy and work for them, which is great. You want to play all the cheap-ass games, you know, work for us and, and, and help us uh, demo stuff. Games don't sell without demos, so we definitely need that help. Sure. Okay, cool. Uh, and then you also have a smaller imprint, Hip Pocket Games. Can you tell me a little about that? Yeah, we, we used the Hip Pocket imprint uh, first uh, when we had little $3 games in, in Ziploc bags. And we brought it back again for pairs because we wanted to get pairs into places that, couldn't, that wouldn't necessarily carry cheap-ass games. And we did sort of a similar thing with TAC. TAC says James Ernest games on it. It doesn't say cheap-ass games on it. Um, but... 
I just like the Hip Pocket brand for our for our ten dollar card games because that's what they are. You know, they're they're portable and uh, and they're cool. Okay, cool. Like I said before, I love love a portable quick filler game. I don't know what that says about me as a gamer, but <laughs> that's uh, that's right in my wheelhouse. Well, here's why I love them. I I play games to make decisions, and and so I can do that in a five minute game. I can do that in a two hour game, but. I'd rather do it in a five-minute game. Like I know that there are things, there are stories, and there are complexities, and there are details that that a five-minute game can't deliver. But if I just want to be challenged and make a decision and see if I was right, I like the portability too. I like the quick play. I like the the set it up and break it down because that means there's more opportunity to play it. Uh, you sure. don't have to convince a bunch of other people to commit to a two-hour session. Okay, and as we're starting to wrap things up here, uh, how much time do you get to actually spend designing games now? Not as much as I would like, but but I keep trying. Um, my my game design challenges go all the way from you know product design and sort of high level describe the product all the way down to editing the rulebook. So um, so if if you count all of that, then that's my job. If you count just the sort of part that everyone wants to do then not very much <laughs> right, right. that's the thing when you're working for yourself you wear all the hats well the other thing is though that i'm editing cards during layout i'm changing game design ideas during production sometimes and that's hard for a multi-man shop to do like a one-man shop can a one-person shop uh can have that sort of connectivity but if there was a layout guy who was laying out my rules he wouldn't be questioning the validity of rules while he was laying them out. He would just be making sure they fit on the page. So, sure. so I'm kind of used to that. And it's, it's sometimes a little frustrating when I'm working with a publisher that I have to get them something that's finished, but not finished. I feel like I have to lay it out, you know, because I got to do all the work that gets it to done to hand it to them to throw that away and do it all over again. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> all right. And what advice would you give to someone who wants to break into the board game industry? Um, I don't, I don't think I have any, you have to really want it, but, but uh, break into the board game industry. How as a, as a, what, as a designer, as a publisher, a as designer a designer, yeah. I, I think that you should understand that, that it's a difficult job. I like that, that the, the way you do it well is to make it look easy. Like, um, so, so learn what you can about the ins and outs of the business from top to bottom. I think most designers would say, if you want to be a good designer, you should play a lot of games, but I don't say that at all. I think playing games for research is fine, but if you want to be a good designer, you should design a lot of games um, and get the discipline to to finish them and ship them, even if it just means playing them with your friends. You don't have to publish them, but you have to get them to a state that they are done, and you have to do that a lot of times before you really get what you're doing. Now, if you work in other parts of the business, if you work in production like I have, if you work in editing or writing or any of the other sort of, you know, marketing aspects of the game, it will make you a better game designer too. So, so develop your understanding of the whole process and, you know, meet people who are in the business because they know more about it than, than I do. Sure. And that's one of those things if you come in, you know, as intern or, or helper here or there, you're kind of around and, you know, things sort of make their way around. If you're out at the con helping set up the table, maybe, you know, next year it's like, hey, you, you did that before. Why don't you help me with this thing over here and kind of a slow, gradual process. Yep. 
All right. So those are all the official questions that I have, but we do have a thing here at the end called the final five, which I'd like to ask you. It's five geeky slash nerdy questions. They're kind of a binary yes or no sort of thing, but you can expound on your answers as much as you like. So I'm ready. Yeah, I'll hit you with the first one. It's Star Trek or Star Wars? Oh, God. I think it has <laughs> to be Star Wars. I love them both. It has to be Star Wars, though. Okay. What are you thinking about the uh, the new movies? The good, bad, indifferent? I, I, I'm liking them. I mean, I respect the criticisms of the new movies, but I am enjoying them, and they're Star Wars movies. And if I think if you looked with the degree of pickiness at the ones that we now revere, you would find them to be even worse. You know what I mean? Like we, we, we've made fun of the original Star Wars, Star Wars movies for our whole lives, but because we love them like our family, like we are also attached to them in the ways that we're not to the new ones. I think if you look at them in a vacuum, I, I, I did see uh, a review of Rogue One, spoiler alert, the things that happened at the end of Rogue One, um, that was like, okay, if this was a war movie and a character who was really, really bad, like let's say it's a, let's assassinate Hitler movie, and at the very end, Goebbels just showed up and killed a bunch of guys for no apparent reason. And then the audience went wild. That would make no sense at all. <laughs> but we have this Darth Vader worship, and we're like, yeah, Darth Vader. <laughs> like, this, this movie can't exist in a vacuum, but okay, if it tried, that's what it would be like. <laughs> right, right. Uh, Force Awakens, I enjoyed quite a bit. You know, got you in all the feels and, and all that. Rogue One, I had high expectations for. Like, I was super stoked to go see it, and I left, and it, it left me flat. Like, I, I went with my dad, and he super enjoyed it, and I was just like, eh. I like Star Wars for the world. Like, I like the promise of the world that everyone speaks their own language but understands everybody, and, and, and that's not always true, but, but like, that was, that was what, what I saw in that world. And so any movie that gives me more of that and is pretty to look at and has a couple of good jokes in it, I love. And if... If I walk away from Rogue One going, wait a minute, maybe we're the Empire. Like, that's that's good, too. But I don't expect it to be uh, ex machina. I don't, I don't expect it to be uh, an amazing story in a science fiction setting. I expect it to be a, a freaking Star Wars movie. So I, so it was great. <laughs> and I, wanna, I want more. If you walked out of Rogue One wanting more Star Wars movies, then it worked. <clears throat> there you go. There you go. All right. Uh, this one may be a no-brainer, but tabletop or video games? Tabletop all the way, baby. I haven't, I haven't even, like, I haven't bought a new console in forever. I used to do it for my job. Now I don't. I don't get it. I don't like it. It's, it's a big money business with players I don't understand, and, and tabletop is just where my heart is. So, yeah, absolutely. Okay, and, and I think that speaks to the social aspect of it, too. You know, the, the social aspect of most video games, like if you're playing The Division or something like that, is just yelling about the guy's mom or where they came from or, or whatever. Right. So it's not quite the yeah, same you thing. You don't treat strangers with the same respect as even people in the same room who you don't know. You know what I mean? Like the Internet is such an isolationist thing that it gave us the current political situation we have, and it's it's never fun for me to play games with, with those in that environment. Um, so, so yeah, yeah. I, I tried to convince my boss's boss at Microsoft when they were interviewing me there that, that computer games were essentially solitaire games, even in the modern context. Mm -hmm. And he was like, well, what about co-op, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, right, but you don't treat those people like people. You treat them like parts of a machine. Mm -hmm. So, so it's a totally different experience than tabletop. Yeah. See, I, I get away with that with my brother. Like when we're playing Battletech, you know, yeah, I, well, yeah, we can say whatever to each other because it's my brother. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, that's a whole different thing. But but uh, you know, you go you go questing with your family or whatever. That's fine. But when you're just logging in to shoot people on in uh, in Halo, it's it's not uh, they're not people. Yeah. Maybe they are, but you don't treat them like they are. <laughs> right, the wonders of the internet. Right. Yeah. Um, DC or Marvel? I know a lot more about Marvel uh, because I worked on a Marvel game, um, but. That's a really tough call. I'm going to have to go with DC for the comics, Marvel for the movies. We're Batman for the comics and Marvel for the movies. That's what I just said. <laughs> so I should just take D- DC out and just put Batman. <laughs> well, this is what this is what frustrated me about Batman v Superman. And I, it was a terrible movie in all kinds of reasons, including that it felt like there was a great Wonder Woman movie happening in the next room that I didn't get to see. But the thing that bothered me about it was remembering Dark Knight and, the, and it, when Superman and Batman fought for a reason. Like, yeah. that was a good story. This was just garbage. And, and, you know, that comes from me reading Dark Knight. Maybe if I hadn't, you know, if I didn't know the, the material, maybe I would feel better about it. But, yeah, no. <laughs> sure. All right. We're, we're going to extend this into a sixth question. So from Charles in charge, Cthulhu or Dagon? Or who? Dagon. I think that's my answer. No. <laughs> okay, so we're a little too far afield then. We're HP Lovecraft territory now. Yeah. <laughs> All right, that's fair. All right, so back to the other questions. Uh, sci- <laughs> sci-fi or fantasy? I think fantasy. I mean, that's, that's where I spend most of my time. The, the problem with space, and this is from a marketer's perspective, the problem with space is there's nothing there. So if you, if you try to make something about ships in space it's going to feel like every other ship in space thing you've ever done unless you color it up with something else that's familiar um but fantasy is i mean it's overdone but the reason it's overdone is it's full of understandable archetypes of every conceivable size and shape sure okay and if you could have one superpower what would it be blindness (laughs) (laughs) because then i could live without fear (laughs) okay that's an interesting answer (laughs) Never had that before. Uh, that, uh, I would have thought maybe flying. Well, my daughter, my daughter watched uh, watched uh, Deadpool with me back. Uh, I don't know, you know, when she was probably seven, and, and the whole movie, she was like, "That's your thing. You you can't see. That's your whole power. You're blind." Okay, I guess. <laughs> Not Deadpool. What did I? I didn't say Deadpool. I, I no, meant um, Daredevil. 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 Yeah, yeah, Daredevil. Deadpool is great. Daredevil. <laughs> yeah, you can't make an R-rated uh, superhero movie. Oh, you can't get away with that. That would never work. <laughs> uh, well, I, you know, Brian saw that with with the the little video clips and the released footage and the you know all that other stuff. I mean, he really he he really fought the good fight for that. So uh, he did a did a good job. But yeah, uh, that well, that was a fun movie. Yeah, yeah. All right. If you want to give all of your contact information, of course, we'll have links and stuff in the show notes because I forgot to do it earlier. So I will do it when this wraps up. So if you want to give all that stuff out. Well, I'm James Ernest of Cheap Ass Games and you can find me on Twitter. Our company is at Cheap Ass Games. I'm personally at Cheap Ass James. And uh, we have a Facebook page that I believe is called Actual Cheap Ass Games because, of course, we got spoofed before we were on there. Um but we're, the, the one that seems current is the right one. Uh, cheapass.com is the nexus point for all this stuff. We have a newsletter you can subscribe to right there and learn all about what's new every, uh, every couple of weeks. Cool. They can get on there, join the demo team, and uh, maybe get out there and, and uh, promote uh, the cheap-ass world. 
people are interested in that. Share the joy of learning. I'm, I'm glad you enjoy pairs. That's uh, such a good, solid game. Yeah, it was really fun because it has like such a like a poker aspect. I brought it to the meetup, and uh, you know, I explained it, and was like, okay, well, let's see if we could figure it out. And I just you know started dealing out cards, and you know, people are tapping the table, they're giving the nod, they're you know, little thumbs up or whatever. It's just a really cool thing, and you know, some of the colors are really close, so you start to flip it, and like, oh, <laughs> but it's not that color, and you're like, oh, okay, and then everybody's like, whoa. It's just, it's a lot of fun. And, and it would be even better as a drinking game, which I haven't done. Um, but, I, but I think like, you know, if you're at home. Well, absolutely. I mean, it's, and, it's a game with one loser. It belongs in a bar, right? I mean, yeah. you, this is a game where you have to pay a penalty. And I, I played this on the, the Joko Cruise a couple of years ago. Um, I taught it on the Joko Cruise a couple of years ago. And I heard of other groups who were exacting some really brilliant penalties. Like if you lose, you have to do a lap around the deck. <laughs> um, my, my favorite ones were dinner related. Uh, if you've ever eaten on a cruise ship, you know what that's like. And one person had to accept bread whenever it was offered. And that didn't just include the wait staff. Anybody at the table could offer him bread and he had to say, yes, thank you. Um, uh, so, so yeah, that's, uh, the penalties are, are, are a good unsung part of that game. Mm, yeah, for sure. Uh, which we have to be a little bit more light at the, at the board game. Meet. It's just like, Oh, well you lost. <laughs> <laughs> we, we we get a large variety in Make age. Make him tell a joke. That's a great penalty. There you go. There you go. I'll have to try that next time. <laughs> well, I want to thank you for coming on. This was a pleasure. I'm I'm glad that we were able to finally uh, put this together. I know we didn't get a chance to talk at Rincon too much, but this was uh, definitely a lot of fun for me, and I hope so for you as well. Absolutely, and I hope I'll see you there again uh, next year. Yeah, absolutely. I'm planning on going. That was my first RinCon, and uh, what a way to kick it off. I met you to schedule this and, you know, talked to Andy Looney and, and got an interview from him and, uh, you know, talked to Seth Jaffe, and it was just a wonderful experience. It's such a small con. Uh, you know, you see the same people all weekend, and, uh, you know, you can really sort of get into the nuts and bolts of certain things, and it was, it was a lot of fun. I, I prefer those smaller cons. Yeah, it's a good show. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, I'll give out our details here real quick. You can find this awesome content and all of our other stuff at legendsoftabletop.com. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback, you can reach out to us at legendsoftabletop at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at Legends Tabletop, no of. Uh, we're on Instagram and Tumblr and YouTube where some of you are watching this now. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks to everybody who participated tonight in the live chat and sent us uh, questions and things by Twitter. We appreciate that. And we like to see uh, people being involved. It makes uh, gives us all the warm fuzzy, so that's good for us. Uh, we're also on iTunes, SoundCloud. You can find all of these video podcasts released as MP3s. So uh, we hope you download all those things. And thanks again to James for coming on. It was an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. We will be in touch to get you scheduled for uh, sometime in April, and we look forward to that as well. Oh, for sure, yeah. All righty. Thanks, everybody, for checking it out, and we'll catch you next time. This podcast is a proud member of the Legends of Tabletop Broadcast Network. For more gaming-related content, please visit www.legendsoftabletop.com.